And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strine and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest and longtime friend of the podcast, Liza Trombion, the Crude Street Podcast! Oh my goodness. That was awful. Hi, hi, was welcome a... back, Liza. Hi, how are you doing? Ben. <laughs> oh, nice. welcome, welcome. That back. was an extraordinary lead in right there. I like that. Was that was awful. That was terrible. Yeah, you... That was the worst ever. <laughs> I'm going to retire after this well, very but episode. We... Uh, but <laughs> the, and, and, and before, so you don't have to explain, Liza. We know you've had a cold and your voice sounds really Lauren Bacallish right now, which is cool. Yeah. If there's only something something that I could actually turn this into, <laughs> all I've got is my staff asking me to sing She's Got Betty Davis Eyes in the Office. That's the only <laughs> thing I've got. Which isn't really a backup <laughs> career at all, is it? It's so, not. It's not. I can't turn it into anything useful. So, so, so welcome. I do my job not completely fail <laughs> um, vocally during the next whatever time that we spend. Well, welcome. It's February. And as we all know, that means that it's a nice, relaxing period of time when nothing much happens and we can all sort of look back. It's also the most insanely busy time of the year you have. It's t- the time when the, you know, the recommended reading issue hits the shelves. That's got to have been fun and games. Yeah, you know, it, it, um, it doesn't matter how much you think you're going to get ahead of it. This year I had pushed everybody up three weeks and I was like, we're going to do everything three weeks early. And the, the last day we were still scrambling for information and finding typos. And it's, um, there's no way to make it less work and still do it. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to actually be in February and not January where we're making the February issue anymore. Well, let's uh, keep going. Well, you Sorry, go ahead, Gary. Uh, just kind of a quick question. When you say you're pushing everyone, uh, that's something that some listeners may not be aware of, some readers of Locust may not be aware of, is that there are a lot of people involved in this who are not in the office. You can't go and bop people on the head because we're all over the world, really, right. uh, making recommendations. A long bopper to do that. But, um, yeah, no, so the, there are all the different pieces sort of gathering the list of books that we've reviewed and other books that we might want to talk about, um, getting all of the reviewers and the other people that we ask to give us recommendations on the recommended list. Uh, to actually respond, because as everybody knows, sometimes email is the, not the most effective. Um, but then there's also, we do this big magazine summary, and we reach out to all of the magazines, and we ask them for comments, and we go into uh, their websites or their physical magazines, and we count their stories so that we can say they ran this many short stories and this many serials and this many pieces of nonfiction, or we just say, if that's not broken out for us, we'll say this many pieces of fiction. We list editors and pay rates and Hugo categories. And it's um, a lot of people, a lot of emails. And, and we're still making the rest of the magazine at the same time. So we're still doing the reviews. And the, we, we do cut it down usually to one interview. We did Al Reynolds this time, which was great. He was super charming and interesting to talk to for his interview. But... Um, so we're still doing a regular amount of work, and then we're doing all this other stuff, which mostly involves lots of number crunching on our end and doing research and trying to not make errors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a lot of hands. I probably had seven people working on the magazine separate summary, 
in the office mostly. And that's just the magazine story, you know. Um, well, and I think all, I don't know if we had, how many people we had in the end voting, but yeah. we had all of the reviews voting. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, perhaps to sort of take a step back a little bit, yeah, you know, we're, we're talking about the Locus Rendered Reading List, which comes out in the year in review issue in February. What is the recommended? Actually, say what it is we're talking about. <laughs> I thought I thought we would. That, that had been my plan. I thought we'd go. Yeah. I would say to you, what actually is the recommended reading list? How long has it been going for, and what's it for? Um. Well, you had said that you wanted to ask me that question before I even got here, so I was actually. I'm giving that away. But I went and I looked, so I have all of the um, old issues bound. And if I go back to 1972, um, it's just an article by Charles talking about books he liked. (laughs) And that's it. It's like, he's like... This, you know, this was a crappy year for science fiction and blah, blah, blah. Or this was a, or this was a great year. It was kind of meth for this. And like, he just talks about stuff that he likes. And it was his take on the year. But there wasn't really a strict list. It was in uh, text format. But then by 1973, he's got a list. There's best novel, best novella, best novelettes. Um, short story editor, artist, the stuff that you're more familiar with now. But he gives something away kind of funny in the intro. He says, with the help of our panel of experts, an expert was anyone who held still long enough to make recommendations and hopefully has enough diverse opinions in it to satisfy everybody. And then at one point he says, anything either of us felt strongly about went on the list. I don't know who the other person was that he was talking to in 73 that helped comprise either of us. Um, but so you got it, but it grew and it went from that to now, you know, in 1973, I think Charles had pretty much read all the books that came out. Like he was really somebody who could speak authoritatively through his own filters and opinions, of course, but he could speak authoritatively to what had been published. And now that's clearly an impossibility. Um, and so we have the reviewers, and we have reviewers together. So the current version of that, which grew on its own to wrap in more reviewers as there were more books. And, you know, even in the beginning years, Locust just didn't have that many reviewers or that many reviews. And now we have a stable of reviewers. We're trying to see as much as we can. So now we go out and we ask them, um, what were the best, what were your favorite books? What were the books that really worked for you? And, and so that system replaces this one person who could actually read everything with now a bunch of people who do their darndest to read widely. Yep. So and does that mean that? Of- does that mean that basically the locus editor in chief or publisher's role with compiling the recommended reading list changes from authorial to curatorial? You know, you're bringing in the opinions of. 15 or 20 people. I mean, when I first encountered the list in the 80s, you had no idea where it came from. When I first was involved in working on it in the 90s, it was clear there was one controlling voice or one um, coordinating voice, I guess, for, mm-hmm. for the award or for, or for the poll itself, for the, the reading list. Now it does seem to me, even if it's not 
as obvious and clear to people in the world at large that it is actually an expression of, well, I would have to reckon about at least 20 people or 25 people expressing their, their, their various views and having them tabulated and voted for and all that sort of thing. And you do, like I said in the beginning of my part of uh, your review write-ups, is that any if we'd asked any single reviewer their list, it would have been a completely different list. I mean, not completely, but it would certainly be distinct. There would be parts that match and then parts that were different because our reviewers are more specialized. You know, we've got Russell, who does a lot of hard science fiction, and we've got Farron, who does fantasy and dark fantasy. We've got Gary, who does a little bit of everything, but, you know, Carolyn hits more urban fantasy, and now we have um, Paula Grant on short dark fiction, and we have John Langan doing horror novels, and so there's, and collections and things, so there's, everybody's got their own very distinct opinions, and so um, it has to be the end result of taking all those opinions and putting together, and then saying, okay, but we need to have an, a list. It can't just be the everybody's favorite book. Sure. Well, I think, yeah, I think one of the effects also of the last 20 years of evolution in the field has been the, the specialization of readership. As you both mentioned, nobody can read everything. Uh, and as Jonathan mentioned, very politely saying that the recommended list went from authorial to something else. Actually, it went from authoritarian to something else. It went from authoritarian to a, a sort of consensus, but the consensus varies by category, doesn't it? I mean, for example, we have a horror category again this year. Most of us, most of us who are reviewed for Locust did not read more than two or three of those horror novels. Um, first novels, young adult books, again. So it's getting a kind of – I assume it's getting a kind of critical mass of at least two or three people who have read enough in the field to know what should and should not be listed this year. And I think even if – so in previous years, we've had fantasy as the category that horror is wrapped into. And it, has, it had always come up when I was working on with Charles. He's like, if there are enough horror books, we'll break out a horror category. But the books that are suggested, the books that we review, my base list that I present to people for the list is these are the books that we reviewed. Uh-huh. All the books that we reviewed. So now that we have... And we have Stefan Jumanowitz and we have Tim Pratt who occasionally review horror. Now that we have more people looking at it, it's it's just a obvious consequence that we would have more horror titles to consider. And, but even so, there's oh, that's Gary. That's, you can tell. <laughs> what am I doing? I don't know. Anyway, continue. It'll, it'll stop. But there are there are books. Um, the Firemen and uh, Certain Dark Things and Lovecraft Country, um, Disappearance of Devil's Rock. I think there there are some, or Hex by uh, Thomas Oldeholyvelt. Uh, I know I pronounced that wrong, but, you know, there's there are these books that would have made, and not that the other ones are any less quality, but that they were read less widely by our reviewers. But still, a certain number of people have to want the book to get on, and those and that happened. We had, we definitely needed to have a horror list, but we also part of that is that we had so many fantasy books. Mm. Like if, yeah. if we had had them all in one category, we would have been up in forty something, I think, or almost Gar- forty. 
Gary was talking uh, a moment about you know, more specialized sub-juries, if you like, within the awards. This year, one of the uh, differences, I mean, there's always been a books group of people that's not even true. For a long time, there was just Charles and a few, the, the reviewers immediately in the magazine and a couple other people that he talked to. That now, it, for a while, it, it has evolved into there being a books group and a short fiction group because of the volume of short fiction and the fact that the, mm-hmm. the, 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 those reading didn't overlap. This year, you've also, in addition to bringing back the horror category for the first time since the late 1990s, I think, one of the late 1990s, uh, you've also got I, the first ever specialized young adult jury involved does right. that does well, that reflect what was the intention there what was the thinking there in doing that well um i wanted us to address young adult books in maybe a more even-handed way because one of the things that happens is that we have one young adult reviewer, and I have a couple of reviewers who read a very small amount of young adults. And then I've, you know, I'm looking at other lists and um, without having somebody to say, well, just go read all these young adult books and tell me if they're any good for locust readers. So uh, I reached out to some other people who, I mean, Quentin de Bond had been on the list before. Colleen Munders, our young adult reviewer right now. Mm-hmm. Carolyn reads young adult. I mean, all of the all of the locust reviewers were invited to vote on young adult books. But I did reach out additionally to some people who are in the field and doing young adult. Um, we had Justina Ireland, Justine Ladelestier, Barry Goldblatt, Eric Smith. Um, we re- reached out to some other people who didn't end up voting, but we had a, a larger group of people. Because I really wanted it to, to to feel like it was really more informed than I and without and you know two years ago we didn't have or maybe three years ago we didn't have a Y reviewer and we were struggling to put that list together in a way that was doing its service. So I thought and actually they they uh, they read um, in the last six weeks they read books they had conversations they voted on things they questioned why we did things one way or the other. And it was a really satisfying process in uh, in that group. I think they all took it seriously, and it was really nice to have do it. Certainly, I think the that's thing important that I because... go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. Certainly, the thing that I the thing that I thought that it added to the list this year was that it started to recognize the kind of young adult work that was seen as being excellent within young adult, than rather than simply happening to overlap with what science fiction readers or fantasy readers might happen to, to, you know, to read. And that seems to me right. like a really important, worthwhile thing to do. Well, and these people, because these are all science fiction fantasy uh, professionals, whether they're authors or agents, they're all in the field and they are working in genre, but they also are firmly placed in young, the young adult community. And so they do see more than we see, because a lot of times the young adult publishers don't take advantage of Locus as a venue for them because they have this young adult community. They have young adult librarians. You know, they're not looking at the science fiction or the fantasy. They're not thinking of that mm-hmm. as a way to market as much because young adult is already a huge marketing category. Um, but no, I think you're right. I think we really, and I think all of these books have a, uh, are firmly in genre and people would, like things that they could look at past what we talked about sure. in the year own reviews. So it's nice. I think we did 
we did well with that. My comment was going to be essentially the same as what Jonathan basically said when I deferred to him, which is that those of us who don't read young adult as young adult are going to see books by, by Garth Nix or Alastair Reynolds. Uh, we're going to see those things in the young adult category. We're not going to see the things, the names that mean something in the young adult world, but may not mean as much to the science fiction or fantasy world. Um, but a, a kind of footnote to that is something that people should understand about the list as well, is that some cat, the books only appear in one category. I would, for example, personally, have enthusiastically recommended Alastair Reynolds' Revenger in the science fiction category. It actually is a young, young adult novel. It's, it's in the young adult category. Uh, the same thing is true with some of the first novels, which could have been recommended as fantasy novels or as science fiction novels, but they're in the first novel category instead, which doesn't mean a book is excluded from other categories. It simply means that it has to be assigned a category, right? Right. Well, and the, the way it breaks down is first novel tr uh, beats all of the other categories, and then young adults uh, beats whether it's science fiction or fantasy, and then after that you have science fiction and fantasy. So if that's confusing it to anybody, that's how that um, falls out. But even like the Al Reynolds book, I always – say, I'd like to go and ask the author, because if the author says it's young adult, then it's young adult. Like that doesn't matter because publishers are going to do what publishers do. Publicists are going to uh -huh. do Booksellers are going to shelve where they want to shelve. But the author should know. And I go to Al and I said, during the interview, I was like, so, okay, I have a question, burning question. Is this young adult or is this um, adult science fiction? And he said, well, <laughs> but, but the way that he ended up talking about it, he's like, I really wanted to write something that my, you know, 14 or 16 year old self would have really enjoyed reading. And I was like, well, that, yeah, that's a young adult book. And then when I, and when I read it, it like you, you read the first chapter and there's not really a question no. about where, certainly at least that part of the book yeah. lives. And so, um, so, I mean, sometimes those questions are harder than others, but... And, of course, for clarity, it's not possible for a book, you know, from a young adult fantasy debut novel to win the young adult, the fantasy, and the first novel categories. Not... No. In the locus awards. No, no. In the... Well, I mean, to be fair, it's not... I don't know that that's... That, that is, that's, I think, actually, I'm sorry. I think that's not true. I think you can... So it just comes down to – so basically if, for example, readers listening to the podcast now, when they go to, to you know, cast a vote in the poll, they could choose to pick a book that would fit that category and – or well, let's say you know, Gary mentioned Revenger. They could vote for it for best novel and for best first novel, and those votes won't be conflated together. They'll be uh, held in their separate categories, and you'll win. Is that right? You could, not first novel, obviously, but you could do young adult and science fiction novel. So first, first novel and, and, and young adult are the only categories that you're allowed to also vote for those books in science fiction and fantasy. And it says it on the poll, although I think it only lists yeah. first novel. Let me but you've always been able to vote. For so, but we only, it doesn't help us to put with this many books. It doesn't help us to place it in both categories, but you can vote. I mean, people can vote how they like. They are write-ins. They can, you know, they can do what they like in the ballot. Yeah. So. As the person responsible for bringing this all together, do you find that the categories frustrate you, or that they help you structure the, you know, the, the, the recommendations that we're going to actually deliver in the end? 
Right. Hmm. <laughs> well, you get a little bit of both, right? You get the books that are just so fuzzy. They are just straddling science fiction and fantasy. And um, you could quite easily put them in either category. And hard and fast rules are hard to come by when it comes to genre categorization. Especially, I mean, there are lots of books you can say that's definitely science fiction, but there are a lot that you, depending on how you look at it, you could put in either. Um, so I struggled with that a lot because we did this initial list and I was like, okay, I have this many science fiction books and I have this many fantasy books. And then I went through the science fiction list and I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's not a science fiction book. <laughs> you know, and I started putting things around and the fantasy uh, category was getting bigger and bigger. And I was like, oh my gosh, but there is so much that is either science fantasy or it has elements of both. I think, um, is it like the Andrea Hairston has magic and aliens mm-hmm. and it's Carly Strauss's laundry files is, you know, demons and, uh, you know, otherworldly stuff happening, technology and espionage. And like, how do you, it's a, it's, a, it's a debate that comes up and it's, I think it's an interesting debate and it's one that, uh, comes up in the award that I administer the Crawford award, which as, Locus recently announced is going to Charlie Jane Anders. Good example. It's got some science fiction in it. It's got a lot of science fictional thinking. It's got a lot of fantasy. It's got a lot of magical thinking in it. And generally, and Liza, you were part of this group uh, who discussed it. I think our decision was if it's got fantasy in it, that makes it fantasy. If it's got science fiction in it, that doesn't necessarily make it science fiction. In other words, fantasy, that is impossible occurrences, trope speculative occurrences in terms of categories. It's very hard to make those, those rules, but you do have to at some point fall on one side or the other if you're going to categorize things. If we just had novels and we're like, and it's just going to be endless. But I, I think for readers, if you're going to recommend people are reading books, in the end you have to look at the book and be like, well, who, who wants to read this book? And, yeah. you know, it's hard. Like, it, there are a lot of, like, I think things like the Nightmare Stacks or uh, uh, We'll Do Magic or Small Change, or this, there's a lot of crossover people on either side of that fence would enjoy it. But, um, you know, I think that there are other books that it's like, yeah, the, this definitely is for science fiction readers. This is crazy. Yeah. And, and the people who cross over are going to read from both. And so that's, you're fine, you know. So thinking about the reader is an important category. is an important way of thinking about awards as to what kind of reader would want this kind of book. Right. Well, and certainly if you want someone to win an award, you want to recommend it to the right kind of reader. You right, want, exactly. You know, it's like when we assign reviews, we want to assign books or give books to the right kind of reviewer, the, the one that will enjoy it the most, understand it the best, be able to place it in the field, and it's that same kind of logic. So, before we go in, into any detail about the list itself now, because we probably should, I think people would be interested to hear a little bit, what, looking at, at it as a whole this year, uh, stands out for you as, char- as characteristic? Is there anything that really strikes you when you look at it as a whole now that it's done? I hate those questions, John. <laughs> <laughs> we all do, but that's what You're we're just- here for, right? Right. I want you to look at these 183 novels. <laughs> that we have named or 182 or whatever it was and make some kind of judgment on the year. Um, yeah. Uh, 
No, I mean, there were uh, the only thing, the things that classically stand out are like, was there that really stunning breakout book that made you, you know, um, rethink things? And, and for me, there, there wasn't that book. Um, I know that for some people that there were books that did that for them, but the, um, it's just, you know, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I I find those I find those kinds of questions really difficult to answer. Oh, it's 183 titles. Well, so. for what it's worth, this is what what, what you, know, you know struck me when I looked at the book list particularly is that while it's a balanced list, it's still because I guess we're an English language publication, it's still mostly American and British Commonwealth writers, publishers, and books. There is more non. Uh, British slash American were beginning to creep into it. And I think one of the most worthwhile things about this year's year in review issue is adding the coverage of African science fiction by Jeff Ryman. I think that's a really great thing to have done. And I think the fact that you can see, you know, writers like Sisin Lu and others beginning to make regular appearances on these lists also is a great thing. You know, I actually would have liked to have had even more international books. We didn't have a lot of books in translation. Hex was in translation. Um, obviously, the Death End was in translation. But it would have been nice to see. But, you know, I understand from the publishing standpoint that that's a very costly thing to do. I'm happy when it, it, you see it, but I understand that you pay a translator as much as you may pay an author. And more. On the, other, on the other hand, I think you're beginning to see it more in the short fiction end of the list and have for the last five years or so, particularly via you know, the Chinese science fiction through Ken Liu and Clark's World and everything, and some of the support over at Tor. But it does seem to be a thing. And also, sort of, you hear more about uh, English language science fiction and fantasy and horror that are published in Africa, in South America, in Europe, uh, that maybe we wouldn't have heard of as much. And I think, hopefully, that will be a trend that will continue. There's a few books that I ended up looking at once the listing process was all done that were, you know, really outstanding books that perhaps, you know, if had they been read more widely, might have gotten more support. And of course, that before we do this last little bit is the key thing with this. For anyone wondering, I mean, uh, you say it quite clearly in the uh, issue, uh, Liza, but if you look at the short fiction list, if you look at the book list, and you're asking, how can this thing not be there? These people are all Psycho, psycho to have not added it. The real truth is that it was a voting process and you needed to have gotten typically three enthusiastic people for it out of, out of the group. And if the really, if, if it, if the work couldn't get that as a minimum, it probably couldn't get over a barrier. And that would be offset by, you know, if you've got three people who really loved it and two people who really didn't love it, then the book wasn't going to make it on, unfortunately, or the story or the whatever else. So. And I think, you know, in some ways that does that thing that voting does is that you end up more in the middle. You may be more conservative. It, it may um, it, it may not serve as many outlier titles in some ways, but you we, it, this isn't a, a huge field of people voting. It's a set of people that we pay regularly to review for the magazine that we respect and that are you know, this is a curated set of people, if nothing else. You know, if not, if it's not that the list itself is being curated by one person, we're certainly asking people that we know care so much about the field and read widely and do all these things, you know. <clears throat> so, 
and there are categories, and, and, and two of them that come immediately to mind are horror and, and nonfiction, where there simply aren't a lot of people who've read more than one book in the field, or there are very few books in the field that will have been read by more than one or two people uh, because they're not widely available. In the nonfiction category, for example, I'm, I'm certain that everybody in the world has seen or heard of Neil Gaiman's collection of essays, uh, Viewed from the Cheap Seats, um, which will probably win a Hugo Award. But there are a lot of other nonfiction works that almost no one sees. And the same thing must be true about the horror novels. Even though the horror novels that we list are probably more mainstream than the ones that show up in the uh, world horror ballads. Well, and I think actually in some ways horror has been much more mainstream lately yeah. in a way that allows for greater uh, exposure um, to readers. And, and I think that is also one of the things that we're seeing with right. our own list of that many more titles. As, as part of the preparation for this panel, I said that I'd, we'd maybe go through some categories and talk about highlights, that kind of thing. And we might do that for a minute just to sort of touch on things. Uh, I certainly didn't read anywhere near as many novels functionally as I would have hoped to, a, a very small handful. So I might sort of run through, and probably to be kind to our guests, I might actually do this, start with you, Gary, in the science fiction category, and then then we'll walk along and then Liza and I will, will, will sort of chip in, because you're probably, I'm going to make a guess in many ways, as widely read in the science fiction novel category as any of us at least, what stands out for you in the science fiction novel category on the Locust Recommended Reading List? Well, it's interesting because earlier I had mentioned Alastair Reynolds' Revenger, which doesn't show up in the science fiction category. It shows up in the young adult, and that doesn't bother me. I did, I, yes, it was a young adult novel. It belongs in the young adult category. There were some things you mentioned, non-English language science fiction. There's a Johanna Senesalo novel, which was very impressive. Uh, there was a Lavi Tidor novel, which is about Israel. That's another thing we should probably parenthetically mention. That's a novel by virtue of kind of our saying it's a novel and kind of the publisher saying it's a novel. But it's really a group of short stories. It's, it's what we used to call a fix-up. Yeah, and, it is a fix-up. It is. But they very clearly call it a novel, and I think it was edited as a novel, mm -hmm. not as stories. And so there were respecting that. About it, and there were alterations and so forth and so on. Uh, there are things that did not get a lot of recognition that I liked a lot. There's Paul McCauley's End to Everywhere, which I don't think even now has been published in the States. Uh, yeah, so I think calling attention to novels, but because of the various problems of international publishing, calling attention to novels that uh, that haven't necessarily been visible to, to American readers is important. I liked Madeleine Ashby's Company Town. Uh, it surprised me how much I liked it, uh, and I still think about it quite a bit. Uh, and yet um, there were other novels by major, major writers that I didn't read. I didn't read the C.J. Cherry novel. I feel really guilty about not reading the C.J. Cherry novel, but I've been feeling really guilty about not having read the last six or seven C.J. Cherry novels. So, again, it's just an area that, that, that I haven't seen a lot. Um, Apart from that, the one thing that I think is interesting listing it as science fiction uh, is the one purely sort of mainstream novel on the list in terms of how it was published and received and winning a National Book Award, which is uh, Charles Colson, The Underground Railway. Uh, and that is an astonishingly good novel. Um, 
I'm not sure whether I would have counted it as science fiction or as something else. Um, there's no scientific mechanism for what happens in that novel. <laughs> right. Well, I think, I mean, at our end, we dropped it in under the sort of alternate history laws. And alternate history could be viewed, if you want to get into a debate, we could do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> Right. Some people say it's always fantasy, and some people say it's always science fiction. Uh, so I'm I'm inheriting Charles's. It's always science fiction. Yeah, basically. Um, the you know it's it, it, that that is one of those things where you just have to pick. You know, you have to pick you have to put mm-hmm. it somewhere. I think the Cinesalo also probably could have landed in either. It has a lot of you know it's weird finish. So, you know, where do you put that? So, um, there, I mean, there are always those books that people argue about. We had a letter written in about, um, why the devourers wasn't on the list this year, even though the person who wrote, write the letter, somebody that I know and, and respect, and it wrote a very measured, although passionate letter about what he thought was missing on the list. And but it said, you know, this was a great book that people in the U.S. did not see in 2015. Um, but it doesn't make sense for us to list it twice either. Well, I guess this well, is always I mean, the I challenge think- when it comes to deciding to hold a book over, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then you have to know that is is it going to have? Like, if so, book comes out in 2015, and we see it. We get review copies. We review it. So we know it's out there. We talk about it in the magazine, but we don't know. We don't know if it's going to get a U.S. edition. Um, do we list it or do we hold it for the next year? Because it came, I think it came out in December um, in the U.K. or in, in mm. it came out yeah. of Penguin India or something. Um, and then, so then you have this decision to make. If you don't list it and it doesn't come out in 2016, it's never been listed. That's if you, right. If you do list it. Uh, maybe that pushes a U.S. publisher to go yeah. and take a look at it. So you don't know what is going on behind the back channels with the publishers. And we certainly hadn't heard, I don't think, at that point about a U.S. publication. So, another good example is, is another friend of the podcast, James Bradley's novel Clade, which was what? Last year at this point, not even 2016, but 2015, won't appear in the United States until sometime in mid-2017. And as I recall, we did list Clade as a recommended book when it was only available in Australia. We did, and, it, and we won't relist it. No. So, so let me it is, th- it's an impressive, you know, we do, you do what you can. Yeah. So let me throw to you, what were your uh, feelings about the science fiction list this year? Liza? Um, you know, I, 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 I think it was a strong list. It has some of the, you know, obviously there's the Corey book, and they've been very successful with that. Series and Dave Hutchinson's Europe series has been hitting the list every year. Um, so there's some, you know, Ken, Ken McLeod, Paul McCauley, CJ Cherry, they, when they publish books, they usually end up on the list. I think Genevieve Valentine's sort of nicely firming up her spot as a person who regularly appears. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, I don't know, and I don't know how many people saw last year even by the time we were voting, but it, people, the people who did on the reviewing council, called that, were enthusiastic about it. 
No, I think it was good. There's a lot of parts of series in here that were surprising. Um, I mean, I know it always happens, but sometimes those are harder for me because I don't read a lot of series. I read sure. a lot of standalones. Well, I guess this um, is this is the thing. I mean, there's not as many. You said at the, at the, you know, earlier that there's not the dominant, startling, major book that everybody's looking at. And those books tend, but aren't exclusively uh, so, they tend to be standalone books. This list, as strong as many of the books on it are, tend to be, as you say, series books. Even the Genevieve Valentine book, Icon, is part of a series. You know, the uh, Ken McLeod is one of a trilogy, I think. Uh, this is the third one that's just about to come out. The Great Bears part of a series. The Baxter Reynolds is uh, a sequel to something else, and so on and so forth. So that's a, a challenge. I mean, I will say for me, because of the structure of the list, the one thing that's missing from the science fiction list, but is on the recommended reading list, is Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, which was a startlingly good debut science fiction novel. You know. Well, this is one of the things I have to tell people to keep in mind, because it, it does show up on the first novels list, uh, as does Nice Gall's first novel. Both people who have substantial reputations, and I think this is something that's fairly important, that when somebody has developed as strong a reputation in terms of short fiction as uh, Yoon Ha Lee or Nisi Shaw, or to go back a couple of years, uh, people like uh, Hanu Rayanyemi or, or David Marisek, the first novel is almost surprising to us that it's a first novel because we know the name, we know the writer. Um, and so I think it's wise for people before they start getting huffy about somebody being omitted from the science fiction or fantasy list, they should take a look at either the young adult novel list or the first novel list because the name might be there. Sure, sure. So let me sort of skip around now, uh, Liza, and start with you. With the fantasy novel list, what stood out for you as being of interest about the kind of books that were there? What what the major books were for the year? I mean, Guy K's book I really enjoyed. He's, you know, he's somebody who's going to... Yeah. He's a very much, like I said before, the known quantities are, are strong. and You know what they're going to do. Um, I like Laundry Files, so I like the Nightmare Stacks. Uh, I think Max Gladstone's series is getting stronger as he goes along, um, which is nice. It's, it's sometimes hard to get people to read a series that way, but I think he's, um, he's shown, like he's continuing to evolve in his writing. Um, I don't, you know, yeah. I'm trying to think what I read here. The Winged Histories was very good. Um, That's the Sophia Samatar book, yeah, yeah. Sophia Samatar. Mm. And I don't know what, which other ones I actually got finished, at least. What did you think, Gary? Oh, and Peter Beagle's Summer Long. It was very, Peter Beagle's got that, like, I don't know, it has almost like a, uh, like, pastoral feel with this like sort of nostalgic he's just like he's got that mode there are writers that just can basically can get by on the strength of their lyricism uh peter beagle is one actually pat mckillop is one uh when it comes to short fiction or novella length fiction uh so so there is that there was the thing that impressed me i think that, that impressed me more than i expected it to impress me was the second volume of ken Liu's trilogy because it's actually a better novel as a novel than the first one was, even though it's longer. It doesn't have as many fantasy fireworks in it. I think he's frankly gotten over his silk punk thing about how cool this is to have medieval silk technology. And he's written a novel which is 
completely readable as a standalone novel. This is The Wall uh, of Storms, Cage, of course. The Wall of Storms, of course. We should name the books uh, we're Guy talking Cage, about. We should, we should do that. Um, the, the same thing could be said of, uh, of Guy K, who I think has actually gotten better as he's gotten along. I was... I was not. I think I've. I think guy knows this. I hope so. I was not as enamored of his early European novels as everybody else was. But when he comes back to Europe after a couple of novels in China, uh, it's I think one of his stronger novels, and that is Children of Earth and Sky. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff here I did not read, uh, so I feel like I, I I can't comment on it at all. But uh, you, you'd mentioned the um, you, you, you you'd mentioned the um, Sophia Samatar novel, I might throw in, since we have it classified as uh, fantasy, Charlie Jean Anders' All the Birds in the Sky, which I thought was celebratory in tone. It was a lot of fun to read, and the people I've talked to who who had problems with it, the problems are more theoretical than um, emotional, I guess. It seemed seemed to me to be a fun book to read. No, I, you know, I really enjoy she's got this way of writing whimsy and the sort of quirky moments um which you see in her short fiction but in and in the book it's there's like there's one scene early in the book this is the first third of the book or so is this sort of fairy tale like story about this the, a boy and a girl and the, and the boy is sort of a, a tinkerer mad scientist little boy and and the girl i mean i think they're 12 or 15 but and the girl discovers she can talk to birds and starts to find out she has magical abilities. But the story about their relationship is lovely. And the, these little moments that she throws in are stunning. And so, Uh and now I think this book was a fix up also. And I do have a little bit of a a prejudice against fix ups just because the transitions can be rough for me. And I know that's my own opinion, but I keep going back to, this one in my head, like I keep remembering this one scene where the kids are sitting underneath these stairs and then they're telling stories about the backs of the ankles that they are looking at as Uh people walk down these public stairs in a mall, I think, or an outdoor area. And they tell, you know, this person is a so-and-so and this person is so-and-so. And there's like, oh, and and the girl says, oh, and this guy is an assassin, but he's been kicked out of the guild and blah, blah, blah. And then you shift into this character who turns out he's an assassin and it's, um, I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. It's early on, but it is this. It's this lovely moment when the the fantastical becomes real, and and it does something for you as a reader. And so, um, you know, I had some parts of the of the rest of the book that I did not enjoy so much, but on the whole, it was a really lovely book. I think she's a brilliant writer. Yeah. And again, I'm surprised that this is a you know first fantasy because she's been writing. Yeah. Right. I would probably also throw, throw in a mention of I would actually throw in a uh, mention of Nora Jemison's The Obelisk Gate, which was an mm-hmm. extraordinary book. I mean, I probably only read half a dozen fantasy novels during the year, so I wouldn't go out of my way to say that I'd written I had read widely, not written, uh, but I'd certainly speak of that. Uh, and Patricia McKillop's um, novel uh, Kingfisher was also very, very good. Uh, I'd also, although it's you know, double ma- name ch- checked again over under over under the, the first novel category. Uh, Angela Slatter's first book, uh, Vigil, was an enormous amount of fun and would be highly recommended normally. 
I'm not quite sure how to approach horror because I don't think any of us regularly read a lot of horror, but I probably heard more about more horror novels this year than in any other recent year. Uh, and there's a real variety. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, the obvious book to talk about in some ways is something like, say, Joe Hill's The Fireman. Uh, but the book that I heard about the most and the most all year in many ways was Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country, which was, you know, this, you know, re, Imagining of a Lovecraft story set in a particular time has a entire racial element brought up to it, which is really interesting. It's beautifully written, and also Stephen Graham Jones's Mongrels, which I heard about again and again, and is out over in this country quite widely. And um, Sylvia Miranda Garcia's second novel, Certain Dark Things. So, what did you think, Liza, based on your uh, interpret, you know, your what you saw, what you read yourself, of what was happening in horror, at least as well as you know we'd know it. Well, I I read um, I read the Fireman and Mongols and Hex and Disappearance of Devil's Rock. So I read some horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably more than I I do like horror a lot, but it's probably more than I usually read. A lot of this like um, has a had, like Hex and uh, Disappearance of Devil's Rock and the Fireman all had fairly strong mainstream feel to them while they were firmly in horror there was a lot of it, it felt like it was very approachable in some ways um hex is a story about a town that has a witch and the town is sort of cursed but you sort of start out with you know teenagers and kids and like oh and then there's this she's got her eyes and her lips are sewn together she's in terrible shape and she can sort of appear anywhere but they've just grown used to her and so it's a really interesting take on things, and it does get kind of horrific. So if you're not really a horror reader, you wouldn't like it. But it also has this very strong mainstream element. Disappearance at Devil's Rock um, by Paul Tremblay was really good. But you never quite know what happens and what is happening. And in the end, um, it's a surprise, but it's not a surprise the way that you think it's going to go. It does have a very long anticipatory build which he does very well. And um, I think he'd won, uh, he won, what did he win for the book right before that? Head Full of Ghosts. He won no, something. Sure. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely um, hitting his mark on that stuff. And then The Fireman, I mean, Joe Hill is, obviously he's a good writer and he makes so many back references to other things in that book. And, mm. and it's funny, like, post, did either of you read it? I yeah, it's this, uh, you know, it, it's it's just after the apocalypse, sort of like everybody has been, or there's this epidemic of people who are spontaneously combusting. And it's, it seems sort of crazy, but he's not dealing with it in a silly way at all. It's very serious. And then you're sort of, ta- like there's all this, this story about sort of families being torn apart and then people finding new families as they go through this, basically post-apocalyptic change on the planet. It's really, in the end, it's a really nice story. I really enjoyed it. But some of the other, I mean, I can't speak to, I had read The Girl with All the Gifts, but I didn't read Fell Side by Mike Carey. Um, but I like The Girl with All the Gifts. I think it was a, it was a follow-on to that one. Yeah, well, you talked about horror a little bit, a little bit mainstream, and one of the things I noticed about our, the Locust Horror List is that 
Uh, I think three of the books are published by William Morrow, which is not known as a horror publisher. That's as many as were published by Tor. So that tends to support your argument of of horror sort of moving into the mainstream. Although, as we know from looking at ballots on uh, things like the International Horror Guild World Horror Awards, there are a lot of tiny presses out there still producing horror. But William Morrow seems to be – obviously they have Joe Hill, but still they seem to be – backing this kind of literary horror. Let's just move on to young adult for now. I mean, I have to say this is my favorite category on the entire list this year. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'm curious, Liza, how you feel about and what stands out for you on the young adult list. Um, I, I did not read a ton. That actually t- is, is, is what I like most about the list, the list by the way. There's two or three of my favorite books of the year here, but you've got a group of people who really clearly understand what they're doing. They've recommended some really interesting-looking books, and by a lot of people who we don't usually hear from, we don't really usually Mm -hmm. pay a lot of attention to. That makes it really interesting as a resource. And so if you're listening to the podcast, I would strongly recommend you going to the Locus website, looking at the recommended reading list, and I guess to talk to really talk over you, because I was asking you for your recommendations, Liza. I would very. I, I know your voice is beginning to crap out. Uh-huh. Um, I would. I loved Gar- Garth Nix's Golden Hand. I'm totally sort of compromised. He's a dear friend of mine. And any time you get to sit in a villa in Tuscany, watching the sun go down, reading any novel, the novel automatically becomes about fifty percent better than it ever was before. But even allowing for that, Golden Hand was a wonderful addition to uh, the Old Kingdom. And Kelly Barnhill's The Girl Who Drank Down the Moon. It's just a fabulously wonderful, brilliant novel that uh, my uh, youngest daughter, Sophie, who was on the podcast once, read first and then uh, recommended, was in re- just wrapped with, fell in love with. And since I it's hit, yeah. It was one of the books that among the young adult people who were making recommendations, that was one of the most strongly recommended. Yeah. And I also heard, also heard great things about Delia Sherman's The Evil Wizard Smallbone, which is supposed to be great. Uh-huh. And... um. Obviously, yeah, since Al Reynolds' book is here, uh, I would you know, reiterate any recommendation of it. Gary, since we're trying to save Liza's voice a little bit. <laughs> what about you? Do you have any thoughts on the young adult category? Actually, pretty much uh, the only thing, I mean, the, this is full of books I want to read. The Barnhill book, because of what I've heard about it. Certainly uh, the um, evil wizard Smallbone, because Delia Sherman is, again, is one of those glorious writers whose prose is worth reading, even though this... And it also has some humor in it. So one of the things I do see showing up in young adult is finally there's some wit, there's some humor, there's some lightness. There, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of young adult dystopia on the list this year. There are not kids being oppressed by their elders and, and hidden behind walls and, and forced to eat maggots. And it's, <laughs> yeah. no, it's well, and actually, just to say, there are a number of first novels that came over from like, The Girl from Everywhere as a Young Adult um, by Heidi, I don't know if you say Heidi Heilig or, or how to put that exactly, The Devil and the Bluebird. Um, but several of these books were an, young adult books that were voted on, and then because they were first novels, they got pushed into that category. The first novel category, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. <clears throat> And since I don't intend, given that our time is running out along with Liza's voice, I don't intend that we should actually go through all this. We might just finish up 
pretty much with first novels because it's, it is actually such a critically important category. This is where you see the blossoming of major future voices in the field. And I think you do see that right here. There's a, one or two people who are you know, familiar. I mean, Nisi Shaw has been in the field for quite some time and her first novel, Everfair, is here. And you, know, you reviewed it, Gary. Really strong book. Um, Liza, how did you feel about first novels? How do you feel about you know, it as a category yourself? Well, I don't, I, I mean, I don't think that there were a lot of surprises is the only thing. Mm-hmm. Um, these, mo- like a lot of these authors in first novels, are, we are familiar with their short fiction. I didn't really like Nine Fast again, but I'll say that again, just so it's out there. Um, but, you know, David Levine, we've seen him. He's, right. he, he, yeah. did he, Campbell, he's, he's been around for a while and this is his, uh, first long form, um, publication, um, but uh, you know a lot of these names are not. Uh, Angela Slider's been writing, Nisi's been writing. Mm-hmm. So I think it, um, if anything, it sort of feels a little bit more like a, a a stepping forward for some short fiction writers that we're familiar with into actually doing novels, rather than something that's just blowing me away and I've never heard of the person before. Right. Oh, well, the one thing I've heard about on this list, many good things from people I respect, is Nick Woods' Azanian Bridges. Azani. Uh, it's something I want to read on this list because it seems to have a good reputation. And again, I'm hearing about it from people who are not particularly young adult readers, who are simply impressed by uh, by the imagination of it. Yes. Should, well, we move on very, <laughs> should we move on very briefly to collections and anthologies? I know we can't spend a lot of time on all of these, but... Uh, I, even though he won't admit it himself, Jonathan had two of the major anthologies of the year, uh, which have partly shown up because of the number of stories ended in the recommended things. Um, no, I paid for them to be on the list. Very, hmm? No, I paid for them to oh, be on the yeah. list. Oh, oh yeah. I, we, 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 didn't, we didn't discuss Locus's price list for being on the list, did we? Your soul. <laughs> No. Okay. You're talking about anthologies, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about anthologies and collections together. But certainly, uh, anthologies aren't as – am I correct in saying they they aren't as much a force in the field as they were 30 years ago? It seemed to me there was a period of time when anthologies, original anthologies, at least competed with the magazines. And this was when there were a limited number of magazines and so forth. Now there are many, many online venues. Define force. What do you mean? In terms of the number of stories which originally appeared in anthologies, which later show up on recommended reading lists and awards ballots. It's certainly true. I mean, because, you know, the the people in the office worked very hard to map this, that you can see that we're recommending Mm -hmm. this year and in the last few years fewer stories from anthologies. Uh, That's partly, I think, because there has been a real proliferation in the publication of short fiction in magazines and particularly in um, in online magazines and also because, and this is actually critical and probably something that's not documented very well in my opinion, the critical factor in the change to the stuff that appears on the Locus Recommended Reading List and whatever else is, uh, fiction that you don't pay for is doing better than mm. fiction that you do pay for. So you don't get to read what's in an anthology if you don't hand over money, but you can read every single piece of online fiction without handing over any money at all. And that is a 
critical difference. And I noticed throughout the voting for uh, recommended reading that work that you had to pay for attracted fewer votes. That had been actually read by fewer people. So that that's just a real artifact. So I don't know that it's necessarily true. It may be somewhat true. I think it's still tr- still you have the reprint anthologies performing a vital role in the field. I think the best reprint anthology of the year was easily the Vandermeer's The Big Book of Science Fiction. I think original anthologies still take their own lead in their own way. I mean, I think the best original anthology of the year was The Starlit Wood by Dominic Prisian and Nava Wolf. So, you know, uh, well, is it less? I don't well, know. I mean, the world's the, changed. The point you're making, the, point you're making uh, the, the, the Starlit Wood was essentially a theme anthology. It was rethinking fairy tales in various ways. And my argument would be that the original anthology does better if there is some kind of overarching theme which gives it a kind of unity, which is certainly true of your own drowned worlds. Uh, and it certainly was true of the Starlit Wood. Uh, it's it's less true of things like uh, – it, it certainly was true of Tremontaine. It was less true of things like Jack Dan's Dreaming in the Dark anthology, but in a sense that has a thematic focus by having a national focus. That's true. So in other words, if you want to know what's going on in Australian short fiction, it seems to me as an American, I would have to look at Jan, Jack Dan's anthology. There's some truth to that, yes. There's also some fa- fabulous collections published this year. You know, I mean, it's a great time for short fiction. Some great stuff. I mean, the Joe Abercrombie book, uh, Sharp Ends, uh, the Eleanor Arneson book, Warhoff Stories, uh, Jeff Ford's The Natural History of Hell. He's always, you know, wonderfully reliable and produces fantastic stories. Probably amongst the more exciting new collections, there was a couple. Carla Hernandez with the Assimilated Cuban's Guide to Quantum Centuria, which I think I actually said properly, so yay. Um, can we- Sorry, what was that? Greener Pastures. Yes, Michael. by Michael, Michael Wehunt. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess it, it, it almost seems impossible to remember that this is the first collection just presenting stories from this writer for them the first time because he is so built into the feeling of the field these days. But Ken Lose the Paper Menagerie was his, is his debut collection and actually that's, is, that's a huge, is, an, is a huge book. I mean, he already feels like he's been in the field for a long period of time. So there's a lot of short, short fiction. And the best of McDonald and Al Reynolds. Uh-huh. Well, that Peter Straub. Yes, very much. Speaking of people who've been in the field for a long time, there are collections from Peter Straub and Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, which go back decades in terms of what they're including. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of, a co- of collections is that you, you get these sort of looking back over the careers of people who you are very, very familiar with, and then you maybe get to see some things you didn't see or revisit some stories you've seen before. There's also that first introduction sometimes to somebody that hasn't hit novels yet, but you you get to see what they're working on and what they've chosen. So that's really good. I guess now that the Locus February issue, the recommended reading issue, is out, and all of the staff are going to your collective retreat on the Isle of Mystique, so you can go kite surfing together. Um... What do you want readers to do next? Next? Next. Oh, are you hinting that I think that they should go vote? <laughs> yes. So the next thing that all of the readers should do, Locus and otherwise, is go to our poll survey and fill it out and let us know what you thought were the best novels and novelettes and novellas and short stories of the year. Um... There, if you go onto the site on the right hand side in the column, there's a 
a double image. The top will link you to the recommended list. The bottom will link you to the survey. And uh, you can go fill it out. And we'll be giving out Locus Awards in June. Um, and I really hope everybody goes and votes because it just makes it a better award. Um, there are our recommended list items are auto-filled into it because otherwise tallying is a bear. But there are write-in ballot spots for five write-ins if you would like to write something in. Um, so go now to locusmag.com and vote. And also, am I right, Blyza? There are also a couple of categories in the Locus poll that are not in the recommended. We don't have a recommended best editor, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's um, artist, there's editor. Uh, I'm not looking at it right now. But there are several categories that we don't recommend on, but we do give awards for in June. So, And it, while you're at it, go and nominate for the Hugos if you are a uh, Worldcon member from last year, next year, go do that. Well, I was, was going to say that this, this is actually a great rehearsal to, you know, either bring in uh, the nominations that you have from the uh, Hugos or to carry these forward into the Hugos if you've read widely. And if you if you feel like you're not widely read enough and, you've, you know, you've got the six weeks remaining till the Hugo no- nominations close, there's the recommended reading list. Sort of get onto it. It's really kind of time. Uh, and ours. Well, our deadline is April fifteenth. So, so it's oceans of time. You know, sort of oceans, oceans, oceans of time. Think about Before we close the podcast, forever. Uh, I think we all are feeling the same thing. Uh, that uh, the day before we recorded this, a longtime locust columnist and good friend of some of us, uh, Ed Bryant, uh, passed away, and. He was my my feeling is, and I'm trying. I've been trying to remember this ever since. I I met him sometime in the 70s. He had to be one of the first people I met in the field because he was living in Denver and I was in Denver. And why else would I be in Denver if not to have met Ed Bryant? <laughs> um, but he also, and Jonathan, you pointed this out on Facebook. He wrote. He won a couple of Nebula awards. He wrote some delightful stories like Giants. Uh, but particle theory is one of the classic stories. It's one of the great science fiction stories of the 1970s. Yeah, I went and read that this morning. I, re- I reread it this morning too. Uh, and and the, th- the, the thing, and Jonathan pointed this out on, because when Strange Horizons reprinted it, it had an introduction by Ted Chang, which made me realize I went back and looked at that story. That is a Ted Chang story before there were Ted Chang stories. <laughs> that is a story which is perfectly balanced between character and science. Um, and there were a few other stories in the 70s that attempted to do that. Uh, came out about the same time, I think, as Greg Benford's Exposures did, which was in, but it was just, it's just an, it's an amazingly brilliant story. And Ed had written at least a handful of other stories that were as brilliant. Uh, he did a collection, sort of a link story, Cinnabar, uh, which was very impressive. And unfortunately, his health prevented his being able to write much for the last few decades, but he was, I know, very important to Locus Magazine during much of that time. He was our main horror reviewer. For what were the years, Jonathan? From 1989 through till 2003, he was the principal chased, voice for horror in the magazine. I chased a few review problems out of him, but um, he did have uh, problems with his health. But he was, you know, everybody I talked to since, like Connie Willis actually called me, yesterday and let me know about it and then we talked to some other people 
Cynthia Felice and Steve Tem, who were friends with Ed. I mean, anybody who met Ed was friends with Ed. He was really charming and funny and smart and kind. Um, but the thing that people sort of said over and over again is he was so important to the field. You know, he taught Mil- the Milford workshops. He did. Mm-hmm. He founded the Colorado Writers Workshops. I think both the, the like northern and southern Colorado. I'm not, sure, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but he, you know, Pat Cadian put something up online about how he really welcomed her into the field by when she was sort of standing at a nebulous banquet, looking around completely unsure of what to do. He just walked up as though he'd been waiting for her and said, come and sit with us. Um, and, and acted as though, or, or treated her as though it was an honor for her to come and sit, which was is a lovely way to treat someone who's new to the field. That He really paid forward into the field um, in a way that made him a friend to many, many people. And even though he hasn't been around uh, in the last, 15 years significantly. He still would pop up if he was at Kansas City, he was at the Wild Cards dinner uh-huh. I went to, um, and he would just appear still. And everyone was like, Ed, Ed, you're here. But, um, but that's the thing, he never changed. The yeah. last time I saw him, I finally figured out probably was at the Denver World Con. Yeah. And okay, we were both a lot grayer, but he still had the same hair and he had the same beard. And it's and that smile, too. And, 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 and that kind of wry, ironic smile. But, I mean, partly it's because he kind of looked like an old, aging hippie 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, and he just kind of moved into that role over the time. Yeah. And I, I think it's important, given the fact that he was – you know, less productive as a writer in the last 15 years or so of his life to remember the writer that he was because he was a major part of the field socially, obviously, and creatively as a writer and a, a, a writer's workshop uh, coordinator and, and teacher, but also wrote some wonderful fiction in those books you were talking about, Gary, in Particle Theory, in Cinnabar. He was a collaborator with Harlan Ellison, which should probably get him a special medal because that's never going to be the easiest thing in the world, and managed to managed to come out on the other side you sort of widely loved. So I think, I mean, I would encourage, I mean, he was someone I, you know, I met a couple of times and was a, a lovely person, was close to, to my wife. So uh, I only ever heard mm-hmm. wonderful things about him. Uh, and so, yes, I, I do. I encourage everybody to go back and to, to sort of to read him and not, not forget the important part of the picture, particularly of the 1970s in science fiction, that he that he was. Um, there's a number of voices that, you know, when you look back, are like that. I mean, people like um, George Alec Effinger, uh, who, who risk being mm-hmm. somewhat forgotten as major creative forces. So, um, I, you know, I strongly encourage you, and I, he will be sorely missed. And people might want to go back and look. I'm pretty sure it's on George R. R. Martin's blog still somewhere if you search for it. There was a fairly well-known article by Thomas Dish in Fantasy and Science Fiction called The Labor Day Group. This is when Dish was reviewing. And he identified a group of writers who went to Worldcon every year, which is why I call them the Labor Day Group. And it was John Varley, Vonda McIntyre, George R. R. Martin, and, and Ed Bryant. Uh, and it was an unfair kind of column. It was a Tom Dish kind of column which George rebutted later. But that's really the generation. That's the, the group of people who came in during that period in uh, in the early 70s is what Ed was a major part of at the time. And uh, as, you, as as we all mentioned, his, his various illnesses have kept him from producing over time. But 
but he was one of the superstars of the early 70s. And he, and he was, he even passed, he was a really interesting Locust reviewer. He was the reviewer that you would read the review and really enjoy it, whether or not you wanted to read the book. <laughs> like, you didn't have to like what the book was about, but he wrote really, really good columns. He was yeah. yeah. I hope somebody collects them at some point. Because they really were spe- wonderful. They were wonderful, special, uh, warm, encouraging kind of columns. I mean, that's, I think, probably where I first really heard about Dan Simmons in his columns in the magazine and a number of other writers. So, But this brings us to the end of our discussion of, of the list. You know, uh, I think probably we should sort of let Liza go and rest her throat. Um, we will all, of course, be together in, in, uh, in four or five months in, in Helsinki, where we'll be enjoying the Lipa Justa, and we'll be um, collecting, you know, expanding our Allen Key collections and all those other kind of things. And it's going to be awesome. But <laughs> until that time, thank you so much, Liza, for making time to join us. We really appreciate it. Oh, I had such a good time. It was great. Thank you for asking. Okay. All right, I'm getting closer. I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary Kay, I will talk to you next week. Until then, it's the Coot Street Podcasts, over and out.